Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. On today's show, I have the pleasure of welcoming film producer Marcus Heimhoff to talk about his thought-provoking film, More Than Honey. The film explores the reality commercial beekeepers are facing due to mass bee deaths. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Marcus Imhoff. Good afternoon, Marcus, and welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you. Marcus, can you share with our audience a little bit about yourself and why you decided to make this film? Why now? Uh, normally, I'm a fiction filmmaker. I work with actors and uh, but uh, my grandfather was a beekeeper, and my daughter and my son-in-law are both uh, bee scientists in Australia. So I was very much informed about the situation of the bees, and when they started dying all over the world, it uh, was just more than a family story. It was important for everybody, and this uh, made me put away a script I had prepared for a, for a fiction film with actors, and I started to work with the bees. Thank you. The footage of the bees is really, really beautiful. How long did it take you to capture all the footage used in this film? We have worked five years on this film. First of all, I had to make researches around the world in four different continents, and then we had to find the money for making the film. Then we were shooting in two years, and we had spent one year in the editing room because we had 200 hours of film. But for me, it was very important that I don't uh, show only the point of view of the beekeepers, but also the point of view of the bees, how they feel, what is going on. That's why we have concentrated very much on this macro shooting. A third of the film is in the hive or with flying bees, and it's all real bees. There are no 3D bees, there are real bees. And we have a bee crew, which was big as the crew for filming the uh, people with very sophisticated cameras. We had uh, one, two crews, one crew for the people and one crew for the bees. And the bee, uh, bee crew was double as big than the, the human crew. So you can imagine it's much more difficult to film bees than humans. And we had very sophisticated cameras, uh, high-speed cameras and endoscopic lenses, uh, which you use normally for making operations in human bodies. So we could enter with these lenses into the hive. And we filmed uh, flying bees with 300 frames a second. It means one second of film is one second of reality gives me 12 seconds of film, but I have to catch the real, uh, real second. Otherwise, I have just nothing. For example, the mating of the bee uh, queen in flight, it was the most difficult thing to film. And we have worked 10 days on a tower with a weather balloon and for 36 seconds of film. And we saw it one and a half time and we could catch it. But for me, it's very important that the public can have an emotional feeling that the public can identify with the bees. And if you see them so closely, it is like a science fiction journey on another planet. But the, this planet is just around us. 
It is in the beehives and the bees are uh, feeding us. A third of everything that we are eating wouldn't exist without bees. So it's uh, very exciting to see how they do it. Now, your family has a very long history as commercial beekeepers. I appreciated the private family photos that you included, which demonstrate how personal this really is for you. Can you talk about your great-grandfather and his love and devotion to bees? And what would he say if he were alive today? Oh, he would be uh, astonished. He would be uh, uh, angry because... He had a beautiful kind of Taj Mahal bee house with uh, 150 bee colonies in one one house. And this would be almost impossible uh, because the bees wouldn't find enough food around 150 colonies in one. In Switzerland, they have the bees in houses with uh, little doors, 150 little doors around it. And they wouldn't find enough food all the year long because agriculture has changed so much. That's why people have to shift the bees from from one place to another place, place where something is in bloom. And of course, I've learned from my grandfather the basics that this cooperation between plants and insects, the plants couldn't survive without the help of, uh, of the insect being the... the uh, they uh, couldn't uh, make babies without the bees. So uh, that uh, my grandfather had a canning factory and he was growing his own fruits and uh, berries and uh, cucumbers. So all the fruits, it was just one kind of paradise where the plants and the insects and the industry where they made the conserves. Our days, of course, uh, no canning factory has their own gardens. Your family's history is just amazing, especially the clear love that he had for the bees and, as you call it, the Taj Mahal that he built. It's just really precious. And thank you for including that. I think it says a lot about the relationship between commercial beekeepers as well as their bees. Uh, Speaking of which, Walter Hoffaker, who's the president of the European Professional Beekeepers Association, has been featured on this show numerous times. Walter was actually the person who not only told me about your magnificent film, but he's also credited in the film More Than Honey. Can you talk about how you met Walter and how his work raising awareness about neonicotinoid pesticides has helped you with the direction of this film? I met Walter in the very beginning when I made my researches because he's one of the outstanding uh, beekeepers and he knows a lot about uh, what's going on with the bee and he is able to speak about it and analyze it really clearly for the people. And so when I set up the script, Uh, I was uh, meeting with him in Munich and was uh, mailing a lot of time with him. And then now, uh, when the film came out, we made a lot of work together. We showed the film, we discussed with the public together. And he is traveling with the film also to foreign countries and to committees and uh, to political conventions. He was working also very hard on the ban of the neonicotinoids this uh, very dangerous pesticide uh, in the European Parliament. I came myself as well uh, to Brussels and we made a screening in the European Parliament and we made a discussion there. And it was interesting to see at the airport in Brussels 
where all the parliamentarians uh, are, have to pass uh, when they fly in to Brussels, there was a big poster of Syngenta, that's the factory making these dangerous pesticides, with a bee with a varroa mite on her head. And it was written, here the cause of the dying bees is staring in your face, Syngenta. So the chemical industry makes publicity for the varroa mites, telling that that's the cause of the death. And they make the publicity to the people who have to decide about the ban. And of course, the banners of our film, the posters of, uh, of our film, they are not so costly as this banner of the chemical industry. So you can see how afraid the, this chemical industry is about the ban. And I'm very, very happy that after it failed first time, the ban of the neonicotinoid, after a month, then uh, it was uh, restored and it is banned now for two years. It's very short, but at least it's a, it's a big sign. And uh, I hope it will change something. Well, in the film, you point out that your children now live in Australia where there is no evidence of rural mites. Can you talk about your children and how this has become more of a continuous family matter? I'm not sure if it is venom of the bee stings of my grandfather still in our blood, which made my daughter a biologist and a bee scientist, and she married a professor of bee scientist. So it's uh, the, the bees has been, uh, let's say, the pets of our family since uh, more than 100 years. And then, of course, I'm very happy and I'm sure my grandfather would be very, very lucky and happy to, to hear it. And uh, you see in the film, even my grandchildren in bee suits uh, already playing with the drones and uh, with naked hands. They have the drones on their hands. They are confident with the bees very much. And so I'm sure they will go on with the bees as well. What is very interesting in the University of Western Australia, where they work, they have a big group, more than 40 people working on these researches about the immune system of the bees. Because in Australia, there is no varroa mite. They are, of course, afraid that it could come in any day by a ship or somewhere. And they are trying to breed healthy bees, cross-breeding the domesticated bees with the feral honeybees, which are also in Australia, they have not been, uh, the honeybees were imported by the colons who came to, to settle in, in Australia. But some of them escaped and they are, let's say, like mustangs, the horses, which became wild. And they are catching them and uh, trying to crossbreed these uh, feral honeybees with the domesticated honeybees to try to get a more larger gene pool and to get a more healthier bees. Thank you. Can you talk about what you learned from neurobiologist and bee researcher, Professor Menzel? Professor Menzel, he studies the brain of the bees. He lives in Berlin. He wants to find out what the bees can learn, how they communicate together. He is interested in the individual single bee because the swarm is composed by a lot of single individuals and a lot of bee scientists think bees are just robots. There are stimulus and response and not feelings. And he says that even the beehive itself, 
which is a family, as you know, that the, because the queen is the mother of all the bees, they have special feelings and they can feel how they are treated. It's like a swarm or a hive. It's like one body with, uh, composed of uh, 50,000 single bees. So he is studying how it works together, the, the single bee and the swarm, and he's uh, making experiments about how the bees can find their way, how they make a certain kind of uh, maps of the landscape. We had filmed a very interesting experiment where a bee comes home and she knows already the very good place uh, to find the uh, it is uh, sugar uh, because it's uh, an experiment. There is a, a good uh, food resource. And then another bee tells this bee from another place where it must be even better. And then he puts a little antenna on the bee and is following this bee with radar to know where she is flying now. Is she going there where she knows where is a good uh, food resource? or? to the place the uh, other bee told her where it, uh, where it should be even better. And meanwhile, he had taken away this first uh, sugar and the, the bees come there and nothing else is left. But she remembers what the other bees told her and outside she flies directly to this other place where the other bees has uh, indicated. So it is a very... Uh, uh, complicated uh, math uh, problem which she can resolve. Uh, I would not be able myself. And then she flies home. So he finds uh, out how a bee makes a decision. So if you see this bee from very close, uh, then you can also you will estimate them much more if that is just a flying thing around your head and you make a movement with your hand and you will uh, catch uh, uh, her away. So if you watch things really carefully, you understand them more. Marcus, you did a magnificent job capturing that on film. How difficult was it and how long did it take to capture that one segment which shows Professor Menzel's research? Oh, it was very difficult because uh, if you follow a bee on the radar, radar, you can see a green spot flying and you can see where it flies, but if you have to film it, uh, a, bee fly, a flying bee with an antenna on, on the back, it's uh, quite a difficult job and uh, because we were filming with uh, these high-speed cameras, if we could catch one second of the flying bee, we had uh, 12 seconds of flight. But it was very difficult to catch this second and this very second and often we had just uh, the air and no bees in, <laughs> on the frame. With the help of all these uh, people of uh, Professor Menzel uh, and my team, and uh, we have had a, a bee whisperer uh, who helped us, uh, a man who understands very good the bee, uh, so we could manage to make it visible. Well, you did an excellent job, especially just showing what the bee is experiencing and I have to say it's extremely impressive and I think for people that are watching the film more than honey they're really going to have a better understanding of what is really going on so thank you for including so much thought and insight into what these bees are experiencing I personally appreciated it very much
It's also very poetic, you know, if you really see how the bees are made and uh, these uh, huge eyes, even hairy eyes, they have hair on the eyes to feel the wind and uh, how the complicated tongue, if you can see how they are uh, licking nectar and hearing, uh, so you have, uh, you can really be a bee yourself a little bit. There were two parts of the film that were truly intense. The first was the aerial coverage of the California almond groves. And then the second was the hand pollination process in China. How long do you think we have before that hand pollination process becomes a reality here in the United States? And also, how many people do you think it would take to pollinate the almond groves in California? It would be completely impossible to do all this almond pollination by hand because... uh one almond would cost like a Swiss watch. And uh, you couldn't do it in this uh, few weeks where the almonds are in flower. And it's just too big. It's, you know, the concept of monoculture is wrong as a as basic. Of course, it is much easier to work if all the bees, uh, all the trees are in one line and you just uh, go with a tractor and it's easier than uh, having one one tree there and another tree there. The United Nations food report says if you are going on in this way of, uh, I call it a totalitarian agriculture, we can't feed the world. And this is the excuse, excuse with which the agriculture industry always says we have to do it in this cruel way because it's necessary because the people are uh, would starve if we don't treat them in this way but the un food report says we should produce much more locally and in smaller structures and then we can feed the world if we make all the food uh, in in brazil and in uh, china we make just technical stuff and all the food has to be transported the, the nature was another invention once everything was together and there has been trees and berries and animals and and man and uh, now this monocultures wants to make industry out of nature and of course if you make an industry out of nature you need a very harsh police in this totalitarian structure and these polices are the pesticides because monoculture is a paradise for pests but for example corn they use these neonicotinoids uh, for corn for example and it's necessary only because you plant corn in the same field every year but you could fight the pests of the corn which is eating the roots of the corn you could find it with a, a fight with potatoes if you put potatoes next year and uh, then the pest couldn't survive it would starve and because the the pest which eat corn doesn't eat potatoes but uh, it's just a simple uh, example how it could be done without this toxic material. If without bees, all these hundreds and thousands of acres of almonds there, even if all the population of uh, Mexico would come to California, they wouldn't be able to do it in the short time because they wouldn't be even able to prepare all the pollen for doing it. Because you have first to catch the pollen and then to, uh, to bring it back to the trees. And you can see this w- woman uh, which is doing this in the film in China. 
uh, how how incredibly intense the work is. They didn't like very much what we are filming. We did film in China without permission, and then uh, at the end uh, they wanted to have a permission and wanted to call the police, so we had to uh, escape. I would have preferred to film two or three day, days more, but that's what we could uh, film, and I'm happy that we can uh, have it in the film. I think that the footage that you did capture was very powerful and it gets the point across. Your film has made quite an impression in Europe. All the different awards, the German Film Award, Lola for Best Documentary, 2013 Swiss Film, Austria Romy Award for Best Director, Documentary Film, and the list goes on and on. Now, from what I understand, this film was instrumental in raising awareness as far as the public is concerned about neonicotinoid pesticides. And now you have a tour of the United States along with a book launch. So can you share with our audience where the tour is going to be going and when the book will be available for purchase? Now the film is opening in New York on the 12th of June. Uh, and in other cities as well, but of course uh, the whole country is uh, looking to New York, how it works in New York, and when it works well in New York, then the theaters are interested to show it as well. As much people as possible could see the film in the first weekend after the 12th of June. It helps a lot to bring the, the film around the country here in the United States. So it's uh, the swarm intelligence of the audience which makes that the film will be seen uh, as much as possible. In Switzerland, it's the most successful Swiss film of the year. And this, this makes me very happy because uh, it's the first time that the documentary has this success. It's, uh, we started in October and it's still running now and we are in, in June. And it's still running, and uh, so let's hope it will uh, have some uh, effect also in the United States with the help of you. Thank you. Marcus, could you please share with our audience the website for the film and also how if there is, for example, a community that would like to obtain a copy of the film to show to their citizens, how they can go about doing that? It's on the website morethanhoneyfilm.com. There uh, are all the information also where the film is playing, and uh, you can also write uh, emails, and there is a link to Facebook, uh, More Than Honey Film. There is a More Than Honey site in Europe, but in the United States it's morethanhoneyfilm.com. And uh, the distribution company's name is Lorbeer Film. So you can find all the information on this website. And uh, there is a blog which is uh, written by my daughter in Australia, uh, More Than Honey Book. Uh, this uh, is also the links are on this website. So this is also part of Swarm Intelligence Learned by Bees. Uh, which can help to to that uh, uh, raise awareness about uh, these uh, problems and these hopes. Thank you, Marcus. It has been wonderful having you on the show today. Thank you so much, and I wish you sincerely all the best with reaching the public and having the public really pay attention to 
the messages you are sharing with them that really need to be taken seriously. This isn't just a beekeeper's issue. This isn't just a problem in Europe. This is a global problem everyone needs to pay attention to. So thank you for putting this film together so that people can understand on a more deeper level what's going on with the bees is truly more than honey. Thanks. And folks, oh, you're welcome. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This is June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone. 